Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Shira Berkovitz, who is the president and CEO of Sacred Spaces, partnering with Jewish leaders from around the world to build healthy and accountable institutions whose culture and daily operations foster sacredness and reduce the risk of harassment, abuse, and other forms of interpersonal harm. Thank you so much for taking some time to talk. Thanks for having me. Good. I've been a fan of, of you and your work, um, so it's a delight to be able to ask you some questions and share a little bit of this with our with our Hebra. Um, so just to jump in from the beginning, what are some of the ev- events that indicated a need for such an organization to be launched? I think as most people know, there have been too many tragedies, too many scandals where institutions have covered up abuse, protected perpetrators, shamed or excommunicated victims. And when the public would find out, we'd all become enraged after the fact. And it seemed like there needed to be a simpler way, a way for the people who really cared, and that was the majority of people who wanted to do the right thing, who wanted to prevent this from happening, to proactively take some simple steps uh, to make this issue front and center so that this became a moral Jewish imperative of what a healthy Jewish organization looks like. Right, amazing. Uh, So what are some of your personal and organizational aspirations um, for your vision for the American and, I guess, global Jewish community in, in, in regards to your work? It's really quite simple. I'd like to see protection of constituents, of the people that the organizations are meant to serve. I'd like that to, to see that become a top priority through making policies and training standard for the organization. And I think that once we start doing that, not as an after thought, not as, well, we've got our website and now also we'll protect people. Uh, But as a primary thought that happens the same way we um, don't open a building until we have fire safety codes that are met. Uh, If we start to think of this in that same way, I just would love to see this become standard, not a taboo topic so that our culture shifts and um, people who have long ago left our organizations and our community feel safe coming back. Awesome, awesome. So how are rabbis or, or institutional leaders in, in general, what are some ways they're being helpful allies and supporters to follow these best practices? And how, what are some ways you see some moving the opposite direction? Well, there are rabbis who decide that this is their issue that they are going to make their synagogues a safe haven for victim survivors. There are rabbis who engage in an intensive, deep cheshbon hanefesh, or analysis of the soul, both personally and for their organizations and their communities. And they 
engage in a long process of policy development that is not just words on a page, but actually takes a deep look at what is going on in the daily operations of our synagogue, our organization, and training. And because it's coming from the top, that the rabbi is at every training, that the rabbi is the one signing these emails, that the rabbi is talking about this from uh, the pulpit, because of that, there is an entirely different feel to the efforts that go on in those communities. And what we're hearing from victim survivors or, or stories from these rabbis is that they come to us and say, somebody just approached me and said, for seven years, I have not felt safe in a synagogue. And when I read your policy, I knew it was time for me to come back. So those are some of the ways in which rabbis are helping. Um, and it's important because rabbis can be and often are first responders and are some of the people uh, that victim survivors will go to, to to disclose. And so when they make it clear that they are allies, um, it opens up a door that many, and they start to see things that they didn't even know was happening. And in the other direction, um, Sometimes what happens is that rabbis think that their situation is different. Uh, they can handle it. They're smart. They're well-educated. They're well-intentioned. And they can take care of the problem themselves. And that means that when they face an incident um, or a concern, uh, they sort of shut down the processes that should be happening. And you'll hear things like, why don't you trust me more? Or why don't you trust the person at the center of this? You need to understand that this is a good person. And while what you're saying may be true in other cases, it's not true this time. And in every case that goes wrong, that case is always somehow different, except statistically speaking, it can't always be that that case is different. And what people need to understand is that this isn't about trust at all. This is about what is basic best practice and that nobody should be deviating, least of all, when there's an issue. Yep. Amazing. So since since synagogues and Jewish community centers are, are closed right now in America, we don't know when they'll open uh, because of this, this virus, uh, what are some of the issues um, that you're currently addressing in this current culture? Yeah, um, quite a few. So we're, we're providing case consults right now to organizations that maybe had a concern about um, somebody before the pandemic broke, so they were concerned that somebody might be a victim of elder abuse, domestic violence, um, being maltreated by a parent. And now that they're forced to be home with that individual, the concern obviously increases because they don't have access to the safe spaces they once had, to the people who could have looked out for them, and instead they may be isolated with their abusers. So that's one concern, and so we're we're taking case consults about how um, to help sp in specific cases. Uh, we're also getting more questions um, and more case consults about people who are being sexually exploited online. And um, it's just a fact that children, um, increasingly younger children, including as young as four, are spending more time online today, that parents are stressed and overwhelmed trying to work while also doing their jobs remotely um, and, and homeschooling. And with all of this, uh, children are supervised less and people have greater access to them. People are taking advantage of these moments. Uh, we're seeing posts where people are saying, who wants to be our free babysitter? And there's sort of this um, lowering of the guard because, oh, it's virtual, nothing can happen. 
when in fact this is a time to increase the safeguards because people are at you facing unique vulnerabilities and risks. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we're providing trainings and developing resources to guide organizations on protocols they should be putting in place for online interactions um, and to reach isolated people. Great, great. So um, you started to answer this, but, my, I, but uh, since video conferencing and other means of communication are relatively new tools, what suggestions do you have for communities to harness these new technologies while also keeping previous accountability structures in place? It's a great question. Generally, what I would say is you just want to understand the basic principles for safeguarding people and creating respectful spaces. And so whenever your situation starts to change and the context is new, you want to say, what was the underlying principle of those protocols and how can we get really creative in adapting that to a new situation? And it's not the principle that has shifted, it's the context. So for example, um, a basic principle that might be in place is the principle of too deep leadership that youth are not alone one-on-one -on -one with an adult behind a closed door, or that a rabbi is not having meetings alone late at night in an empty building with congregants to offer pastoral counseling, right? Those would be some of the things. So you'd say, we want um, interactions to be observable and interruptible. Well, that same principle now just gets applied online. And so that would mean that scheduling is happening, um, not secretly, nobody's having secret meetings, but rather that an administrative assistant knows, or there's an organization calendar where meetings are listed, that parents are in the room and a child is at the kitchen table while the parent is doing something else. Even if the child wants to put in headphones, it's still happening there. It's not happening on a bed in pajamas late at night or some random adult is suddenly uh, texting a child and saying, hey, let's chat, right? That we're keeping the same principles and we're just turning them into um, virtual, virtual rules. Amazing. Friends, make sure to check out the Sacred Spaces website to learn more, get more resources, and connect more with, uh, with Shira's work. So thank you so much for this time and for all you're doing. Thank you for all that you do.